Welcome to Elevate Health Podcast, sponsored by Elevate Health of Pierce County, Washington, and One Pierce Community Resiliency Fund, a subsidiary of Elevate Health. This episode features a community care conversation hosted by licensed clinical social worker and therapist Kim Bjorn, Elevate Health's Director of Clinical Integration and Transformation. Today's topic focuses on the challenges faced by families that have children with disabilities and special needs. Kim's guest is Doreen Vandervoort, a social worker and community activist based in Pierce County, Washington, who advocates for and supports such families. Now here's our host, Kim Bjorn. Hello, I'm Kim Bjorn, the host of this episode of Elevate Health's Community Care Conversations podcast. Our guest today is Doreen Vandervoort. She is an awesome social worker and is the parent-to-parent coordinator for an organization called PAVE based in Tacoma, Washington. And I've gotten to know Doreen um, by participating in our Elevate Health Community Advisory Council. And she is our current chair and does an awesome job. And I knew right away that I wanted her to be a guest on our podcast. So, um, so I'm so glad you're here, Doreen. Oh, thanks for inviting me, Kim. It's super exciting to be here. Yeah. And uh, yeah, anybody who wants to come join us on the Community Advisory Council, yes. please <laughs> uh, join us. We we are looking for many voices to join in the future planning for Elevate. So yeah, that's great. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Well, I have a very small background in working with um, kids with developmental disabilities. That was what I did in my 20s. And so when I when I got to hear you speak um, at some meetings, I had it in my head. I'm like, oh, Doreen, Doreen, I need to talk to her more. So can you tell our listeners what is PAVE? Yeah. So PAVE is actually a parent-founded nonprofit here in Washington State. We're founded in Pierce County. So this is where kind of our central office is. And we provide statewide information, resources, and training to families and individuals with disabilities. And that includes special education support, um, support for parents looking for information, help with navigating healthcare and insurance, um, respite programs. So it's a pretty great organization to be hosted by. Um, And my program in Parent to Parent is actually part of a statewide network. So Mm -hmm. there's a version of me in every county in Washington. I just get to represent Pierce County, which is great. And you're like this hidden gem because I've been a social worker here for more years than I'd like to admit. And I didn't ever, I never knew about this service. And I, as some of you know, I'm a therapist on the side and I have clients that, um, have some special needs kids, and I was trying to link resources because that's what I do. And I reached out to Rich because you send them to me, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I wish I known that so many years ago because I went on your website, which I have to remember is it pave.org? What is uh, it? Wapave.org. Yep. So W A P A V. I really encourage people to look at that because boys are a lot of great information on there. So currently, how many um, clients does PAVE serve? So because we're a statewide organization, we have um, an intake line and an online help request form that's filled out from people all over Washington. And our call volumes in high months, like September and March, average between 60 and 150 calls a week. 
Wow. Um, and in lower months, it's less, 20 or 30 or 40. So it just depends on the time of year and the need for families, too. Um, a lot of the support is around special education. Mm-hmm. So um, a lot of the families that call are looking for help with that. Why is March a big month? It's a high IEP month. Is it? Lots of kids are born in March. And so usually their individualized education programs mm-hmm. line up with their birthday. That's interesting. I mean, September made sense to me since when school starts. But March, I was like, why March? Um, so what led you to this work? Um and being, and why is advocacy such an important piece of who you are? Oh, wow. I started working with people with disabilities when I was in high school here in Tacoma, Bellarmine, and they have a community service project that everyone has to do. So I began working with um, adults who lived in the Jefferson House, which was a group mm. home here in downtown. I remember Tacoma. Jefferson House, yeah. And so that was kind of like my start into the community. So then when I went away to college at Eastern Washington to get my bachelor's in social work. I worked as a therapeutic recreation specialist and did lots of really fun things Mm -hmm. with sports and individuals with disabilities doing community activities and inclusion work um, at Spokane Park. So when I came back here, um, after I finished with my bachelor's, I I worked with Metro Parks doing that similar work and then became a job coach and eventually got that dream job at the state as a case Mm -hmm. manager. I did that for eight years before I had my own daughter, Damara, um, who is a person with disabilities and she's a wheelchair user. And so at that time, I really just needed to be at home and take care of her um, because there wasn't a lot of resources for childcare. Um, And we just didn't know like what would be all involved in her care and support at that time. So I left my career at the state and stayed home with my kiddos for a few years and then got back into the work as an ABA tech. Um, got pretty burnt out from that quickly, mm. actually. I uh, Mad props to all of you out there supporting behaviorally complex clients. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had an opportunity to lead a self-advocacy organization of adults here in Pierce County um, and got to be their program director um, until they joined up with the statewide people first. And then I started my job at PAVE, which was about five years ago. Um, and have been working in parent advocacy supports, just helping families get information since mm-hmm. then. It's really daunting, the, all the different avenues, different resources. How do you access resources when you are an at-home mom who, or dad who is isolated and doesn't even know the first step of what to do to get help? So your resource, your what you do is so important to our community. Thank you. So f- for a family who um, is just starting on this journey, what are some of the important things for them to know and to expect? Hmm. I think probably the first and most important thing to know is that nobody knows for sure what the life of your child will look like. And there's a whole lot of um, ideas about disability that are kind of founded in um a model that says, you know, people are broken, kind of Mm -hmm. this medical model of disability. Um, And I have had the opportunity to meet so many incredible adults with disabilities in the world who have given me like a really great picture of thinking about my daughter from the perspective of her strengths, focusing on what it is she can do and helping other people to focus on that as well. And that has really shaped just how we've been in the world. 
And I think having that influence early was really important. But it started with really good access to services. Mm -hmm. So a great social worker out of the hospital who made sure we were connected with our birth to three and early intervention services. Really passionate about that, getting families connected quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and then knowing people, mm-hmm. building a community around um, disability and people who are wheelchair users, people who um, experience the world in a neurodiverse way. That that has been a huge part of what's been really positive for me is is really like engaging with other parents mm-hmm. and building into this community um, peers for me, but peers for her. Mm-hmm. What would you say to some families that may have stigma as an issue or may have a partner who's really struggling with a diagnosis and it may be sitting in some denial because it's the way they're coping with what's going on around them? Yeah, I would say that grief is a normal part of the process <laughs> and yep. that nobody goes into a pregnancy or into the parenting experience thinking that they're going to have to help their children overcome pretty significant barriers in the world and potentially battles and difficulties about what other people think about them. That includes like the community, the systems we engage with, but also our families. Um, And that grieving those expectations is really a normal part of the process Um, And that all of the feelings that you have are okay. Mm -hmm. I think the key is not to get stuck in any one place too long. And that's a huge part of what parent to parent is about, right? Is we connect families one-on-one with a parent who's a little further along on the journey. That's great. It's really founded in a peer mentorship model, an evidence-based peer mentorship model. So it's really about connecting you with somebody who has been kind of where you are. And it's uh, focused around providing support that's non-judgmental and just says where you are is okay Mm -hmm. and we can talk about it and no feeling is a wrong or bad feeling and we don't judge you for them (laughs) because we've had them. Yes. Yes. So um, how about some of the barriers that some families may experience? What advice can you offer navigating such challenges that they might face? So I think the number one thing is just to know that no does not always mean no. (laughs) I don't know how to put that in a better way. Um, Oftentimes you'll face a barrier or or you'll get a no or a denial from a system because of something small, right? Something like you didn't fill out the right paperwork or you didn't have the correct consent to get the right records. And so no doesn't always mean no forever, It might just mean no for right now because things change with age Um, and that there is support available to get help when you hear a no and you feel like that's not right. Mm -hmm. Like if something just is sitting with you like that doesn't feel right to trust your gut Mm -hmm. and to say, okay, maybe I need to ask for some assistance or look for some help and ask for where that is. And I find the best and most supportive help through other parents. Um, who kind of navigated some of this stuff ahead of me. Yeah. I know with working some families, just for them to understand, okay, I have my child who has some some challenges and trying to navigate the, the medical system. And then it's the social service system, like Developmental Disabilities Administration. And how do I get connected to those services? And what does that mean when I 
my child is part of those services and then they're engaged, but they're not. And because from a social work perspective of somebody who worked in the hospitals, working with those systems, they were challenging at times. How do you help a family who, and people's intentions are good, you know, people that work for DDA or, or DSHS or any of the systems are not there to say no. They're just, they have rules that they follow and sometimes they're not always willing to look outside the box as some of us other social worky type people like to do. So um, maybe think about like a, a case or somebody you might've been advocating for that you had to think a little bit outside. So families can kind of understand maybe some of the things that you do or PAVE does. Sure. So I think one of the most important things that I can say is that um, we ask questions, mm-hmm. really intentional questions like, why not? And can you give me that policy in writing? Mm-hmm. And um, that sounds like a denial of my request. Can I have that in writing? Like some basic advocacy skills and tools that we kind of help families understand in the process, right? We don't go um, into spaces and say, hey, I'm going to do for you. I'm going to I'm going to go talk to the system and I'm going to get it done. Like my goal or my hope is that when I have an interaction with the family, what I'm doing is giving them skills and giving them the language that they're going to need to continue to advocate year after year Mm -hmm. or in the next situation. And um, with the goal of really just building agency, and that comes with knowledge and time and support. They do have rights within all of these systems and that they can come to places like PAVE or the Pierce County Coalition for Developmental Disabilities to get support um, to advocate for um, their child. We'll be back with more in just a moment. Elevate Health podcast is a new series produced by Elevate Health of Pierce County, Washington. Elevate Health's mission is to build and drive community coalitions that result in better and equitable health care for all in Washington State and beyond. For more information, visit us at elevatehealth.org. So what are some things that you wished you had known when you first started learning about the systems and working within your own family? Hmm. I think I wish that I had known um, that all people uh, really struggle with this, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. like even as somebody who was like a professional, I felt a lot of like, I should know how to do this. Mm -hmm. And parenting a child with disability is unique to every single person. Um, And I think that one of the challenges that I, that I wish I had heard up front is that there is no one size fits all solution to anything. And it, over my time, I've learned that there are families raising children with really significant disabilities and significant support needs that are very different than my daughter's needs. And their lived experience is true also, mm-hmm. right? And the solutions that might work for my individual child does not work for other people's. And so we really do have to think about a system of supports that individualizes care and support needs for people with disabilities, because there is no one solution that's going to, you know, create 
a perfect system. There ha- really has to be an opportunity to create person-centered choices around their care and the supports they receive. And here in Washington, we could do a lot better <laughs> at mm. funding those supports. Yeah, We're one of the only systems, uh, home and community-based systems, that doesn't have um, entitlement funding from mm. the federal government. So we're about 38th in states as far as funding people with developmental disabilities. We're number one in the way we fund seniors. We're ranked first. And when you look at the funding for individuals with developmental disabilities, we rank 38th in the nation. Do you have any understanding of the why? Um, Hmm. Ableism? (laughs) I mean, I think that everyone can see a pathway in which they will eventually become an aging person. Got it. And why to invest in that system where not everyone can see an, a reality in which they um, may become a person with a disability mm. who needs these kinds of supports and wraparound services. I also think they're expensive. Yeah. <laughs> and people think of it like that. I also think there's a lot of misunderstanding about like people believe that a little girl in a wheelchair automatically qualifies for social security and gets services from DDA. And that's not necessarily the truth. That is not the truth. And people make assumptions like a child with autism with significant behaviors has access to in-home care and behavioral health services. Also not necessarily true. Correct. And there's a lot of um, barriers within our system um, that are caused by either eligibility rules or uh, funding caps, Mm -hmm. things like that. Yeah, I know as a social worker that doesn't know this area of of this population and the resources around this population very well, when they would come into the hospital, there was assumptions made. Oh, they have um, some kind of diagnosis that puts them in a developmental disability category. Automatically, they must have a DDA caseworker. And then when they didn't, and they're, you know, 25 years old and they could have potentially been eligible but just fell through the cracks, it was always like, well, how do we get them eligible now? And and that's extremely challenging as they are aging in the system. Um, and so I know you're working really with more younger people and families, but are you at all engaged or in conversations with as people are aging um, with with different abilities, autism being one of the bigger ones, the impact on the systems that are currently in Washington State. Well, so I think that we're, you know, we're on our way to a crisis with baby boomers. Eighty yeah. percent of the people with disabilities in Washington State are cared for by their family members and live at home, and that is done primarily with Medicaid entitlement home and community services like personal care, right? Mm -hmm. Like an individual provider who comes to your home and provides personal care Um, because of a lack of providers and things like that. A lot of parents are personal care providers Mm -hmm. um, and are aging and they're providing the home, the shelter, the supervision Mm -hmm. for people with disabilities now and are not going to always be able to do that. So there's a lot of things happening right now in our state around advocacy to help improve the funding and the resources to the system to get things like caseload forecasting mm-hmm. for the Developmental Disabilities Administration, which is essentially 
we know from the census like how many-ish children with disabilities should mm-hmm. exist in our state. Um, or we can look at the number of children on IEPs with certain kinds of services and get an idea of how many then spots we should begin to be funding. Mm-hmm. And that's something that they've been working on, the Arc of Washington and um, Developmental Disabilities Council and Disability Rights Washington, things that they've been working on for quite a few years to help improve access. Yes, it's very needed. Again, I, I refer back to my experience in the in working the emergency rooms in our local hospitals and having folks coming in mainly because their caregiver's sick, who's older, or um, they've behaviorally they are not in a controlled state and the home that they're in cannot put hands on. And so they come into the emergency department and and they stay there for a very for a very long time, longer than probably most people are aware of. I'm glad that there are groups that are looking at this because you're right, it is a crisis at this, or it's becoming a crisis and it's taking up resources in our community and it's not the best way to manage our individuals that have special abilities. We need to be doing better. Yeah, well, and I think about it from a really a human perspective, mm-hmm. right? Is that um, we're all human beings first and we have human needs, right? Shelter, food, care, and then there are individuals with disabilities who have additional support needs. Mm-hmm. But those first needs are still first, right? Yes. Social determinants of health are still, they still apply. Yes. You know, um, people need, you know, access to good built environment. They need access to food and safe shelter and they need access to health care. Um, these are things that are often not as accessible because um, our systems are complicated, right? Mm-hmm. And so, a person with a cognitive disability is not really given information in plain language that they can understand to even navigate their own health care. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there are amazing providers out there who do one-on-one support and who do supported living in adult family homes who are supporting people. Mm-hmm. That system is pretty underfunded mm-hmm. um, in the wages that people get are not very, are not living wages. So somebody who does, you know, work in a state-operated living facility and a person who does that same work in a community-based organization providing supported living services can make anywhere from 3 to $5 less an hour. Yeah. Um, and they're, do, they're really providing similar support to similar clients with similar needs. Mm-hmm. And so that's a pretty underfunded um, service system. And again, it comes down to home and community-based dollars yeah. that are coming into the state. And not that money is the answer to all things, because um, I think you can see with this system, just like any, um, we are we have you know people of color are underrepresented. Um, individuals who have high support needs um, tend to be are more well represented because mm-hmm. they go into crisis and our and our response system for home and community based waivers can oftentimes be that will assign a waiver in response to a crisis um, as opposed to kind of proactively planning mm-hmm. for the needs of people. Um, and so the individuals who you know you might meet at the store or um, who are part of your everyday community, 
may not even be eligible for Developmental Disabilities mm-hmm. Administration Services um, because they have um, criteria. You know, they decide who is a covered client and who is not. Mm-hmm. And they set those out in the Washington Administrative Code. And there are states that have much broader definitions of what a disability is. And ours um, has a more restrictive definition about who can access those Medicaid home and community-based yeah. waivers. But at 18, individuals kind of get a little bit more opportunity because they can access um, home and community services, which is the aging right. um, services, COPES waivers and things mm-hmm. like that. So even if you find that you're not eligible for home services as a child, you can get some of those once you turn 18. Yeah. Again, it's it's all the different umbrellas of funding. Yes. And it's complicated. It is so complicated. Why? Everybody needs a social worker. I know. Somebody <laughs> said, like, one of these days I just want to, like, stick a hard drive into your head and download all that information you've collected over the last 20 years working in social work in this yes. field. And I was like, that would be so wonderful if I could just download this and have it be so understandable for somebody. The truth is, is that it's a one it's a one-on-one conversation yeah. because every individual's unique yep. and what system's going to best meet their needs has to do with their goals, mm-hmm. has to do with what they want for their life um, and what system they can access. We'll be back with more of this community care conversation in just a moment. This episode is supported by One Pierce Community Resiliency Fund, the investment arm of Elevate Health. One Pierce is a nonprofit community investment fund focused on improving whole person health, advancing health equity, and expanding health access for the people of Pierce County. To learn more, visit us at onepierce.org. One of the other areas that um, I would encounter in the hospital is is somebody who's over 18, but clearly doesn't have potentially the capacity to understand and make decisions for themselves. And they, they may even be past 18, but they don't really have any, you know, their, their parents may or may not be there anymore. And so the whole discussion of guardianship comes in. Does that something PAVE ever gets involved in or helps at, you know, with resources around? Um, so we do have some resources about what guardianship is mm-hmm. and what um, self-directed care is versus power mm-hmm. of attorney. Yep. So you can look up some resources like that. There are some really great resources on the informingfamilies.org website okay. from the Developmental Disabilities Council about guardianship and the different options. But here in Pierce County, our uh, InfoEd partners at Pierce County Coalition for Developmental Disabilities host like quarterly, these wonderful info nights with a lawyer who specializes in special needs wills and trusts and understanding guardianship. And those are open to the public and free. And you can register at pc2online.org to go to those. That's wonderful. Because that is something I think people don't think about necessarily until until it's a point where, oh my gosh, we need to have something done now and we do not have anything in, in, in place to help with those decisions. So Yeah, two of my coworkers in my team have a guardianship of their adult children and have been through that process. 
and do help families find resources. So what you can do is contact a parent-to-parent or a parent coalition. Those are the two kind of main organizations in any given county. Um, And they can help you with some one-on-one navigation and referral and information. Mm -hmm. So wonderful. I can't stress the importance of looking at their website. Everybody has such great information in it. So COVID, you know, isolation of COVID, um, that seems to be never ending. I'm sure that has impacted um, connections and relationships um, with your families. Um, What, with that in mind, what groups or resources would be good fit for families to be aware of just being, who may be isolated? Well, I think that the parent-to-parent network that I'm in has been really creative about getting online, Mm -hmm. but I think that it's a big challenge for families. So we've done, we've gone to a lot of just like phone, one-on-one consultation, um, one-on-one Zoom meetings, one-on-one Google meetups, Mm one-on-one Facebook messenger meetups. Like we're looking for ways to still still see your face and connect one-on-one because that's what's I mean, a lot of people are just needing that, mm-hmm. right? A place to process. Um, for isolation, it is a huge challenge right now. Mm-hmm. I would say I have families calling every week looking for activities for their youth. Oh, great. Um, looking for social connections. And they're limited right now for safety reasons mm-hmm. um, from a lot of the places that they were existing. Um, and I worry about them coming back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, and I think a lot of us are concerned about what will happen in our post-COVID life um, because risks don't seem to be going completely away. Yeah. And we have a population of people who are potentially high risk to mm-hmm. have negative outcomes from COVID. Yeah. Schools are opening up. Yeah. That's helpful, but still complicated, I am sure. Yes, it is. I would say one of the more complicated things that even I am trying to navigate, mm-hmm. you know, balancing, you know, what is safe and and also my child needs education mm-hmm. and they need friends and they need social connection. That's really important. They've been really happy this week. Yeah. They went back at to come on public schools this week. So they're both um, there and we're doing okay so far. Um, I think uh, there's a lot of loss for families in this time. Yeah. Um, because it's not just about friends and social interactions for children with special health care needs and with disabilities. They also have lost therapy services Mm -hmm. they've lost access to in-person learning that was needed right that going virtual doesn't work for everybody you know one of the things for parents i've noticed is you know there's a lot of people that don't have access to anything but a smartphone right you know and so you have to be really creative and being inclusive on an online meeting and making sure that everyone has an opportunity to feel included yeah and i'm sure that that was a challenge teachers faced (laughs) knowing some teachers yeah that was a huge challenge for those that i spoke with and and that was a constant worry and concern about who were they missing and how do they teach to for everyone and and yeah it's been a hard year it has i think 
on the plus side of it, we have learned how resilient we already are. Mm-hmm. So, and if there was any group of people who was prepared for isolation and um, having to deal with constant change, it was individuals with disabilities <laughs> and their families sure. and caregivers. We are kind of in that state of living a lot of the time. Um, I wanted to go back really quick to your question about guardianship because mm-hmm. I think it's a really important and valuable thing to talk about. Okay. In the medical system, people with disabilities, um, there's a, an issue around presuming competence. We live in a very fast-paced world, mm-hmm. and we live in a service system that has short timelines yep. and does not leave a lot of room for an individual who needs additional processing time. Yep. And so a lot of times if we had the freedom, you know, uh, to take the time, most, many people with disabilities can't answer mm-hmm. the questions about their health care if they're given ahead of time. Yeah. If they're creatively positioned, if there's time to process an answer. Um, and I don't think our system is designed well for that. No, and it's so, not. Um, cause full guardianship of a person isn't always necessary, right? right That's correct. like taking away a person's every right, like the right to get married, the right to vote. Correct. Um, and oftentimes you can get partial guardianship that protects finances or just protects medical decision-making without taking away all autonomy. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really important discussion that is being had mm-hmm. and is a necessary part of things as we go forward is we presume competence and help people access the supports they need. Mm-hmm. Um, and that shared decision-making for parents is a huge part of what happens after 18. Yes. Coming from a medical system, you're right. It's like, it, it's it's a very fast pace and um, people just want the easy decision to be made quickly. Um, and people with different abilities need some different ways of, of getting the information and, and processing it. So I appreciate you coming back to that and being thoughtful because um, those who advocate for um, the population really need to be able to know what resources and how, and it, it's okay to question. Yeah, I think um, there's some really important things that I've learned from my self-advocate friends, and mm-hmm. that is that I should presume competence Mm-hmm. which is never to assume that they can't do something. I need to ask first what they need help with and how they need support. Mm-hmm. That's what accommodation looks like, right? Um, that there is dignity and risk and that that's important to balance safety and, and risk um, carefully in a way that respects a person's autonomy. Um, but also that there's some... Um, long-held ideas about people with disabilities Mm -hmm. that are rooted in um, discrimination. Mm -hmm. Like (laughs) like there's no really better word for it. They're rooted in discrimination and they're rooted in an ableist idea that um, people need to be corrected in order to fit into our systems and our world Mm -hmm. instead of looking towards universal design and um, correcting assumptions we may make Mm-hmm. And um, systems and built environments to be more accessible for all people. Well said. Well said. So, what gives you hope for the future? 
my kids, mm-hmm. <laughs> all of the wonderful young people that I meet. Um, I do think seeing systems and organizations and nonprofits kind of coming together and collaborating in ways that I've never seen before. You know, there's some silver clouds. I always have hope. I think humanity is beautiful that we're always adapting and we're always learning. And um, we're seeing systems become more accessible. We're seeing, you know, even corporations and communities talking about inclusion as a normal part of their business practices. Um, We're seeing more and more people with disabilities being hired. Mm -hmm. Um, We're seeing more inclusion in our schools. Um, I think there's still work, you know, COVID has set some of that back. Right. Um, But I think that there's a lot of things to be hopeful about a lot of amazing young adults and advocates with disabilities out there sharing their voice. We have a new generation of people with disabilities who are coming out with college educations and strong voices and strong opinions. And it's, easy to forget that the ADA is only 31 years old. Wow. <laughs> right? And so um, knowing that, you know, it was in the 70s, people with disabilities didn't have a right to an education. Yeah. To go to public school with, with you know, you or me or their peers. Mm-hmm. So um, I don't know. The sky's the limit. I have lots of hope. Well, you have been a wonderful guest and just full of great information and so eloquent and and you could tell that it is a passion and that um, you are exactly where you are supposed to be to do this work. So thank you so much, Doreen, for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I look forward to continuing the work with Elevate and um, bringing these conversations to the community tables. Join us for more episodes of Elevate Health Podcast at elevatehealth.org. In each episode, we tackle core health issues that affect our community. This episode of the Elevate Health Podcast was produced by Kim Bjorn, Hannah McCauley, and Robert Marshall-Wells. The executive producer was Stephanie K. Wright. It was engineered and edited by Riley Eggie.